0: hello i'm jim mallard host of the mallard report on the mallard report along with my guest we will have a conversation where we will share thoughts and opinions for more information my bio past shows social media links and so much more visit mallard.com m-a-l-l-i-a-r-d.com and thanks for listening this evening. Before we begin, don't forget to go over to check out schooloferrors.com. David perrin was on last week. He was a wonderful guest as we talked about school safety and safety in general. That's schooloferrors.com. Perfect back-to-school gift for your I don't want to say teachers, but uh, parents that are concerned with their children going to, to schools and just everybody pretty much anymore as the world spins out of control. But that's not why we're here tonight. Why we're here tonight is uh, Larry Olmsted, the author of Real foods, fake foods. Did I say that right? I wrote yep. the website down. I think my... <laughs> that moment of oh, I wrote the website down, not the book title. I'm hoping it's the same. Um, smashing hit, uh, food food critic. Um, what am I missing, Larry? There's uh, that I, I, I was reading your bio in my email today, and I went, that's more than I've done. Period, and that's just what you've managed to put in an email bio.
1: Ah, uh, well, you know, I try to keep busy, but um, I've written for a lot of newspapers and magazines for. 20 plus years as a journalist, I've written several books, uh, and as you mentioned, my last one, Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It, was sort of the breakout hit New York Times bestseller.
0: So, okay, let's go here. What 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 is the, like, when I say fake food, I, I think, like, um, really processed, like, chicken nuggets or something like that, but that's not exactly what you're talking about, is it?
1: It's not because uh, my thing is, you know, I I try not to be judgmental because we all have different styles, you know. Uh, If you love chicken nuggets, you should be able to eat chicken nuggets. I'm not telling people to, you know, be a vegan or eat differently. Uh, The thing is, if you go and buy chicken nuggets and you're not getting chicken nuggets, say you know, you buy chicken nuggets and you're getting sawdust nuggets, that to me is fake food. So whatever it is you want to buy, if you're being deceived and sold something different, that's when it's fake. It's not not that the quality isn't good.
0: Right, and I I hear sawdust. No, I know it's in something we're probably going to get to here in a little bit, but are you talking legitimate, straight-up sawdust? Like, I go out back and uh, the byproduct of sawing my logs, or is this... I mean, I know it, I, it can't be real sawdust.
1: No, so that was a, maybe a bad example because you brought up chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets isn't one of the, the foods in my book. I was just, you know, using yeah. it because you mentioned it. But I give you a more concrete example that happens all the time, say, would be if you went to... A, a restaurant and ordered say a grouper sandwich and you didn't get grouper you get some uh, farmed uh, Asian catfish you never heard of that's raised with drugs that maybe you know are illegal in the United States and should never have been imported um, and you're paying for grouper which is an expensive fish so you know in these cases you're getting uh, you're the victim of an economic fraud because you're way overpaying for what your food, but in many cases it's the health fraud too because what they're serving you might be dangerous.
0: So I watched your TED Talk this, yesterday afternoon. I was going to say this afternoon, then I realized there was a whole day in there, which scares me. Um, and You gave the perfect analogy when you started about the car. Let's, let's start there. That way everybody can be on the same page since I've seen that. I don't want to jump the gun and mislead my listeners here.
1: Sure, sure. Well, you know, I like cars. Um and, um, but, you know, I, I make the point car shopping is not something many people enjoy, even if you're into cars, right? You go in, you always feel like you're going to kind of get ripped off, and it's a, it's a stressful experience, and uh, nobody enjoys shopping for a car. Um, but uh, I make the analogy, you know, if you go in and, and had the perfect car shopping experience, you go in, they're friendly, they offer you a great deal right away, and it's a great price, it's everything you wanted. And you're like, I can't believe it. This is the perfect car shopping experience. But then the salesman says to you, wait, there's a plan B. I can sell you the car you wanted with all the options you want for, say, $25,000, or for twice as much money, $50,000, I can sell you just the engine, the steering wheel, and the driver's seat. Which do you want to do? Well, you'd, you'd be crazy to take, right, plan B, you pay twice as much and get less. But, That's the way food is sold in this country. And all the time, every day at supermarkets across the country, we pay more for less. And, you know, instead of buying the whole food for a certain price, we pay more to get less of it.
0: Now, when you say whole foods, I'm imagining the chain of um, markets, but that's not what you're thinking either.
1: Yeah, no, in this case, I'm talking literally whole, like let's say a chicken. (laughs) You buy a whole chicken, and you know what it is. It's a chicken. It looks like a chicken. You know how to cook it. You put it in the oven. But a lot of people don't want to buy that whole chicken. They want to buy a boneless, skinless chicken breast. So they charge you twice as much or more per pound to buy that boneless, skinless chicken breast. And what you're doing is you're leaving all the rest of the meat and all the flavor off the table. um, And... You know that's a a very stark example. Sometimes you want to, you want maybe a pack of boneless chicken breast because you're only one person and you don't need a whole chicken. But every time you buy any kind of food that's been processed, and I don't necessarily mean processed like um, chemically processed, just just cut up or taken away from its its natural state, you're paying someone to do that. And you know Americans leave a lot. You know we 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 already have issues in this country with with. Um, food waste and, and budgetary constraints, so you leave a lot on the table when when you overpay for less. So,
0: we, 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 I've got a list of specific things that you've mentioned for the years. We'll, we'll get into that here in a few minutes, but what, where did you get this project started? At? Where, where was the genesis idea for all of this?
1: Well, well, for years, you know, I, I, I write a lot on travel and food around the world, so I've had uh, um, uh, I would say wonderful fringe benefit of having, you know, traveled around the world and eaten some great food in some great places. And uh, I was in Italy and went to a dairy that makes uh, Parmigiano Reggiano cheese. It's known as the king of cheeses in the cheese industry, kind of considered the world's greatest cheese. And I was talking to the cheese maker um, and he was, you know, talking about the, the cheese market in Italy. And he said, oh, yeah, it's not like your country. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, there they can sell you anything and call it Parmesan cheese and you don't know what you're getting and you don't know what went into it and if it has chemicals and the quality and its age and what it's made out of. Um, Whereas like in Italy, when you buy Parmesan cheese, it means a very specific thing like champagne in France. So I started thinking about that and I kind of put it on the back shelf. And then about a year later, I went to Japan and I tried uh, the Kobe beef, which is their really famous product. You know, it's like the rolls royce of of steak <laughs> Are the world's most famous and expensive and coveted steak and it is really good and it's very different from the steak we get you know i tried it and i was like oh that's great and then i came back to the u.s and i saw kobe beef on the menu at a fancy steakhouse and i tried it again and it was nothing like what i had in japan And I thought about that, and it didn't really make sense, because a lot of steak is something that we get frozen a lot. It it travels well. It's not one of those foods that shouldn't taste um, just as good here as it did in Japan. So I was like, I wonder why it's so different. So I looked into it, and I quickly discovered, this is at the time, this is about 15 years ago, that... um, the importation of Japanese beef was banned at the time by the USDA because they had an outbreak of uh, mad cow disease and had been banned for several years. So it was illegal to import any Japanese beef into the United States, yet these restaurants were charging people $300 a steak for Kobe beef. That clearly was not Kobe beef because you couldn't get steak from Japan. And I could tell right away when I tasted it. So then I wrote an article about that for Forbes, basically how you're getting ripped off if you buy Kobe beef. And uh, the reader response was incredible. I mean, so much more vehement than pretty much any other story I had done. And this isn't even a food that affects a lot of people, you know, how many, you know, it's not like, you know, starving moms are going to the supermarket to buy Kobe beef for their kids, right? It's like 1% or food. And so I thought, you know, if something that really doesn't affect people very much bothers people so much, what if, This was more pervasive in our everyday life. And then I thought about the Parmesan cheese, and then I did some more research, and I discovered, unfortunately, that the Kobe beef was just sort of the tip of the iceberg of what uh, retailers and restaurants are willing to scam you out when they sell you food.
0: Just, I mean, remarkable to think about passing off something that is specific because I'm sitting here thinking about any number of products, you know, any number of food things that you think, you know, I guess I'm from Western Pennsylvania, so the, the thing that always comes to my mind is ketchup. Heinz ketchup.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and then there's other people, you know, they, even at the local amusement park, they tried serving hunts, and I'm pretty sure they almost burnt the place to the ground. Maybe not that extreme, but it was pretty bad there for a little while. And why, I, I mean, I understand the profit margin that can be made from it, but isn't there some ethical clause somewhere in here if you're selling Kobe beef that you should actually be selling it?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) there's ethical issues and there's legal issues. But, um, uh, you know, I I just want to backpedal a second here because you mentioned Heinz. It's a very interesting connection. So not many people know this. But um, uh, the reason that we even have the FDA today has a lot to do with Heinz back in the day. And I forget. I think it was. I don't know if it was Teddy Roosevelt. I forget who the president was at the time, but Heinz, you know, lobbied to have the government enforce sort of the security of foods because they were making this ketchup, and then people were knocking it off with inferior products, and they wanted somebody to, you know, sort of protect the the consumer from labels, and you know, so that the whole genesis of the FDA is uh... indirectly tied to your your Pennsylvania Heinz friends. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of interesting
0: small world uh, no but I mean I guess they were on point there I mean that's been an issue for as long as people have been putting their name on food then
1: yeah absolutely and you know one of the things, the perspectives I was able to get from traveling the world is, it is in that most of the rest of the world food is viewed um, geographically so I don't know if you drink wine or not um, but traditionally The way wine was labeled was based on place, right? Uh, You have wines like Burgundy and Chianti and Champagne, and these are all places. They're not really a style, right? When you buy red Burgundy, it's made from Pinot Noir, but that's because the people in Burgundy use Pinot Noir. So for, for wine lovers all around the world, these... Uh, place names have very specific meanings if you're if you're into wine you know what burgundy is you know what chianti is because they're made a certain way where they come from and parmesan reggiano cheese is the same it comes from parma and reggio and Kobe beef is the same it comes from Kobe but we don't really have that tradition in the US with a very few exceptions like Vidalia onions which come from Vidalia Georgia or Kona coffee which comes from Kona in Hawaii Um, but we have a a trademark system that's just based on company ownership. So we have never uh, been willing to protect most of these names, and as such, it's completely legal for a winemaker in the U.S. to make Burgundy, to make Chianti, and to make it out of anything they want and any way they want, whereas where they're actually made, um, they have quality standards and rules about how they're made. So you have this sort of Two-tiered system where if you go into a wine store in the U.S. and you buy a bottle of Burgundy from France, you can say without knowing anything about it that you know it has this kind of grape and it's made from a certain quality vineyard, and you know have an expectation of quality. It's like a good housekeeping seal of approval just by the name. Or you could buy a bottle of Burgundy from the United States and literally have no idea what's in it or where it came from.
0: That's just troubling. I mean, I mean, I guess I, I've somewhere in my mind I've already knew that. But as you bring it to light, it just makes me unsettled. And as we get through some of these products, and uh, you mentioned counterfeit vodka. I might as well mention that since we're in the alcoholic part of the show. Uh, how, I guess it just follows the same path as wine, knocking it off?
1: Um, well, no, I mean, with hard liquor, it's not as much of a problem. It's usually there like a case of um, of, of brand names being knocked off, um, though interestingly some of the american manufacturers use products especially in the flavored liquors that are illegal in other parts of the world so when we export certain brands it's actually a different formula um that people in other countries buy because we can sell it here but we can't sell it there <laughs> but, um um you know the shortage. i talked to the former chair of the fda and he told me basically you know it's all predictable based on economics if you have a product that the consumer can't tell by sight, and you can sell them something cheaper, someone will. So, you know, vodka isn't a big problem, but it's very easy, right, because it's a clear liquid. Um, and the same has gone for honey, right? There's there's Honey is one of the most defrauded products in the world. People don't think about honey very much, but it's relatively expensive, and it's everywhere, and people put it in their tea in every supermarket, and most people have a jar of honey in their house, and it's basically amber colored liquid that's sugar so any combination of any kind of sugar product like high fructose corn syrup and water and food coloring can be made to look like a jar of honey and so in these cases where as a consumer you look at something on the shelf and you can't tell what it is like when you buy a chicken wing you know what a chicken wing looks like. It might not be organic. It might claim to be organic, but at least you know you're getting a chicken wing. Um, but with some of these products, you, you don't know because all you can tell is it's clear. It's amber. I mean, uh, milk has a really long history of fraud going back hundreds of years because you could always um, mix things like flour into it um, and thicken it and extend it and make a bigger margin, and people couldn't tell by looking at it.
0: Or what is 2% anyways? I mean, they, uh, anyways. <laughs> Another thing that you can't see by looking at
1: it. Exactly. And it's, I mean, I talk a lot about seafood. Seafood is definitely like one of the most problematic, if not the most problematic, um, categories in this country. And it's the same reason. In a lot of the world, it's completely normal to buy and prepare a whole fish, right? In yeah. Asia and the Caribbean and Latin America – but not so much in the U.S. We go to the supermarket and we buy fillets, and most of the fish we eat are whitefish, and all white fish fillets look the same. So if you go to the supermarket and you say, I want to buy a whole red snapper, right? Red snapper is one of the most expensive fish per pound sold in the United States, considered very desirable. You buy a whole red snapper. They can't really fool you if you know have any idea what a red snapper looks like. But if you order a red snapper fillet, they can sell you almost any kind of whitefish fillet, tilapia, catfish, doesn't matter. all looks the same, and that happens a shocking amount of the time, more than three-quarters of the time. So, um, you know, it, the consumer, one of the reasons I stress the idea of buying the whole food in a literal sense is at least if you see it, it's much harder to be ripped off, um, you know the, the a very a very simple example is, is juice there's a long history of juice fraud you buy an apple you know what you're getting you buy apple juice you don't
0: so is there any food out there that's safe like that we can uh, always yeah. just look at and say yeah that's <laughs> what that's what we're getting
1: yeah there is and and, and maybe we we kind of got off on the wrong foot because <laughs> the, you know despite despite where we're headed i'm actually very optimistic about this and um and I love food. you know, I'm a restaurant critic. I eat out all the time, I cook all the time, I love food. And um, when, I was, when I was writing this book right it's called "Real Food, Fake Food." but I got so frustrated for so much of the time, because I saw all these scams and, and all this sort of evil in, in, in the, the, the commercial world of food, that my working title was fake food, real food, right? Just flipped over. Not a big deal, but that's what I was thinking of. I'm like, there's this fake food out there, fake food. And then, you know, one day I came to the realization that the only reason that there is fake food is because there's real food. And I use the analogy in the book, say, you know, like, there's guys on the street selling fake Rolexes and fake Gucci bags, right? Things like this. And the reason that they they knock these off is because they're desirable you know, high-quality items. They're not, I don't want to belittle, you know, Timex, but you don't see a lot of fake Timexes being sold on the street. (laughs) You see fake Rolexes. And it's the same with food. Um, They're knocking off foods you want to eat. And I kind of had this aha moment, and so I flipped the title, because the real food is the most important. And half the book is about real food, and what makes it taste so good. And I, I kinda take the reader to these places like Kobe and Parma and Champagne, show them how the real product is made, try to explain what makes it so good and then talk about the fraud and give tips on how to avoid it. So I'm 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 trying to approach it from like that the glass half full perspective. Um, it's not you should be scared to eat. You know, I do you know I hear people that said I oh, I read your book and I'm afraid to go shopping or I'm afraid to eat sushi, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but, um, but I also get people who said, you know, I read your book and I started, like, buying better olive oil or I bought real Parmesan Reggiano cheese and it changed my life. And that's really the goal is, you know, that this food is good and it's out there and it's readily available. And the biggest thing, the biggest impediment is just knowledge. Uh, at the end of every chapter, and I have, like, a chapter on cheese, a chapter on seafood – I give a list of very specific tips, labels, things to ask, things to look for in the store. And once you get armed with knowledge and start shopping better and ordering better and buying better, you're eating better and you're eating healthier, and it, that's all a good thing.
0: Yeah, I, I, I was sitting here pondering. I don't know if you've got into this at all, but, you know, there's this uh, obesity crisis. And I'm thinking, well, well, if you're stuffing our milk with flour and all this other stuff, no wonder we're all gaining weight, because I'm sure the um, the fatty, the acidic, the high fructose corn syrup, these things aren't great for any of us, so... Plus all the potato chips and all the other things in the world that we all get our hands on because they're readily available. But anyways.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there's definitely... I mean, there's, there's definitely health ramifications of this, and, um, you know, one of the things is, like, I personally, I love steak, right? I like red meat and... All my life, uh, you know, the sort of perspective of the medical establishment has been, you know, you shouldn't eat too much red meat, it's bad for your heart. Um, Yet, if you look at, and, and the United States has, I believe, the third highest per capita consumption of beef in the world. We eat a lot of beef. But the countries that are ahead of us, which are Argentina and Uruguay, they eat a lot more beef. In Uruguay, they eat twice as much beef per person as they do here in the U.S., and they have among the lowest heart disease rates in the world, whereas we have among the highest. So I look at something like that, and I say, you know, the problem isn't that we're eating red meat. The problem is that we're eating our red meat. And if you look at the way that uh, cattle is raised in Uruguay and Argentina, it's not full of antibiotics and growth steroids and hormones and it doesn't eat a weird unnatural diet of animal byproducts they're raised the way like we used to raise cattle here cowboys they go out and they eat grass and um you know there's been numerous studies showing why you know natural drug-free grass-fed beef is better for you but it's kind of obvious Yet, um we haven't really adopted that here in the u.s and people don't realize this but uh, 80% of the antibiotics manufactured in the United States go directly into animal feed. So you think about, like, all of the hospitals in this country, all the urgent care centers, all the pharmacies. I don't know where you know you live, but if you're in New York, there's a freaking CVS on every block, right? So all of those pharmacies, all those hospitals, all those urgent care centers, every veterinary clinic, all of that medical care system in the United States together Accounts for one fifth of our antibiotics. The rest of it goes into animal feed, and that is why, in my opinion, uh, we are having this uh, rise of this uh, uh, drug-resistant antibiotic strains that are breaking out in hospitals that can't be treated um, because we're eating so much antibiotics in our meat every day that we're becoming, you know, mm-hmm. we're becoming immune to antibiotics basically, so they don't work when you need them.
0: 80%. No what? Yeah, you're right. There's no wonder we're not, you know, because we're just taking it in constantly.
1: 80%. Yeah, I mean, that's... I talked to one doctor who said, you know, I, I get patients all the time who say, oh, I've never taken antibiotics, and he left. He's like, you take antibiotics every day. You just don't know it.
0: Yeah, uh, that's for sure. That's. Whew. You mentioned olive oil. Now, I want to get into this a little bit with you just for a personal reason, because I buy the cheapest low-grade whatever off the shelf. Am I doing the right thing there?
1: No. <laughs> no? Oh, no. No. And, the, you know, the thing with olive oil is that we, um, and this is something I feels very strongly about because I love olive oil. I well, use so a do of I? It.
0: I, obviously. I, that's why I'm, I'm bringing up because.
1: But, you know, the cost difference, so the average American consumes less than a liter of olive oil a year. And then there's people like me who maybe consume six times that, right? And but if you lived in Greece, you would consume 24 liters of olive oil a year. Um, so we're like, you know, we're we're pretty low consumers. And again, I equate it to wine, right? If you were drinking one or two or three or six bottles of wine a year. And there was a quality difference. Would you care so much if you paid $8 or you paid $12? If you're, you know, not, you're not having it every day, right? You're, right. you're doing this a couple of times a year. And olive oil is very much the same way. Uh, yeah, you can save money on a bottle, but you don't really buy that many bottles to, to justify that. Uh, it's one of those products you can afford to splurge on because you don't use a whole lot of it. And the splurge isn't a big splurge. You know, we're talking about a couple of bucks a bottle difference. Um So, yeah, I can't get behind uh, buying the cheapest stuff, you know, for a variety of reasons. Uh, There's a lot of of, of great things about olive oil, and there's a lot of problems with it. But the good stuff tastes so much better that once you have it, it's hard to go back.
0: Okay, so help me find the good stuff then. Because as you're looking at the shelf, they all, you know, glass bottles, plastic, you know, whatever. they all And
1: and there's a lot of sort of subliminal marketing fraud that, you know, a lot of um, them... have pictures of like you know uh, olive groves and chateaus and <laughs> uh, in tuscany but you know because uh, you know um say food producers and food marketers are, are not stupid right they understand the american public and they've done a lot of research and in polls americans say the most important consideration to them when buying olive oil is that it come from italy Italy has been marketed ever since the godfather and you know we have a lot of Italian immigrants and there's great olive oil in Italy but we have this association of olive oil in Italy which isn't really accurate Um, uh, Spain is the largest olive oil producer in the world Uh, Greece is probably the most famous uh, country in terms of cuisine with olive oil. Olive oil goes back to the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians. Um, and it grows, olives grow everywhere in the Mediterranean basin, in Morocco, Tunisia, uh, Portugal. Um, Italy is actually the world's largest olive oil importer. So uh, what the, the companies do is they buy up olive oil from all over, bring it to Italy, put it in bottles. Put bottled in italy on it and ship it out to the u.s and we see it and there's a picture of that you know tuscany on it and it says bottled in italy and we assume that it's italian it's not um so uh not there's nothing wrong with italian olive oil but uh, italy consumes a lot of olive oil and they keep the good stuff at home for the most part <laughs> so um i i i've eaten i've consumed a lot of uh, italian olive oil but i usually have bought it in italy and carried it home uh here i typically um you know look for other things but the, the biggest thing is with olive oil is that it be fresh and people don't always realize this but all of the other food oils that we consume regularly which are you know canola oil which comes from rapeseed um, uh, corn oil which comes from corn soy oil comes from soybeans peanut oil peanuts these are all what are called seed oils because they all come from seeds of vegetables uh, And to extract that, you have to go through a a fairly complex process. You can't take an ear of corn at home and turn it into oil. But olives are fruit. And olive oil is nothing but fresh-squeezed juice. Olive oil is literally obtained by crushing an olive. You could do that at home. Uh, It would be a pain, but you could do it. Um, It's like the oil equivalent of fresh-squeezed orange juice. Uh, Olives just happen to contain oil instead of juice. So... Um, because it's a fruit juice, it's very fresh, and you might take a bottle of canola oil and use some of it and put it back under your sink and use it again three months later, but you would never do that with a, with a bottle of orange juice. Yet people do that with olive oil, and it tastes bad, and they wonder why. Well, because it goes stale very fast. It's fresh juice. Um, same thing on the shelf. Uh, a good bottle of olive oil from the minute it's pressed and put in the bottle unopened has a shelf life of about a year. But, you know, it takes two to three months just to get here because it has to be bottled and sent to a warehouse and put on a boat and sent to a distributor, right? So, you you know, you're already sort of a quarter of the way into the useful life of the olive oil when it first arrives in this country. Also, olives are only harvested in the fall and once a year. So in all of the Mediterranean basin, all these countries, the olive oil is basically made around November. It gets here in January. If you buy a bottle in October... It's already kind of near the end of its useful life even though it's a brand new bottle and that's assuming that that bottle came that year it might have been at the supermarket warehouse already for two years or three years I've seen bottles of olive oil more than three years old on the shelf Um, and to make that worse is very few of them have any dates so this is like the number one tip that I give to answer your question is when you go to the supermarket or the gourmet store wherever you buy your olive oil look at the bottles and look for ones that have a pressed-on or harvested-on date. And it's not required to be put on there by law, but the good producers do it. And that will tell you when that olive oil was born. And you want that to be as recently as possible, but ideally you know, no more than a year ago. And uh, because people have become savvy to that, what some producers have started doing is putting on a bottled-on date, bottled on is not the same as harvested or pressed on because that oil could have sat in a stainless steel tank for two years before they put it in the bottle. (laughs) Um, uh, Some places put a use on date, which is also useless because they don't want their olive oil to get thrown away. So don't put that use by date two or three years out, even though that's too long. So the number one thing you can do as a consumer is look for olive oil with a harvested or pressed on date because olive oil is always made within 24 hours of being harvested so it's essentially the same thing uh and you want to buy it fresh and if they don't have that date then look for one that does and and give those people who are willing to you know go the extra mile your money
0: so when i'm pressing these olives at home how big of a mess should i (laughs) expect to make and how much will my wife hate you for mentioning this
1: no, you'd, you'd actually need, I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd need something to crush it. You know, you, it's hard to do by hand. That's why they have these these big wheels. But um, interestingly, today, most olive oil uh, is made with a centrifuge, so they spin it really fast and the oil comes out of it, um, which is actually better than crushing it between stones, which is what they used to do. Uh, but in either case... The, the legal definition of extra virgin olive oil is basically olive juice that's extracted mechanically. It can't be heated. It can't have chemicals. It's just juice from olives, and that's why it's so good. Um, and, you know, you can get good olive oil from all over the world. There's great olive oil from California. Um, and the other thing people don't realize is, is now a lot of... Um, a lot of countries in the southern hemisphere have really upped their olive oil games. So, you know, it typically grows in the same places where wine grows well, which is why, you know, if you think of olive oil coming from Spain and the south of France and Italy and California. Uh, it also comes from Chile and Argentina and Australia and South Africa. And because the seasons are reversed, like I said, if you go to the supermarket in November and you go to buy Italian olive oil, well, it's going to be a year old. But if you buy Argentinian olive oil, it's going to be Almost brand new because their fall is in our spring. So you know, if you know what to look for, and this is kind of like little tips that I give, you can you can always find something good.
0: Just blowing my mind here as we're thinking about this, and I and then I'm I'm sitting here thinking I can't believe I'm talking about this on air with people actually <laughs> listening to it and interested in it, and but they are. This is great. So, uh, so vert, extra virgin olive oil is machine separated. So how, how do you say that again? Because I. I
1: it means it's it's the, uh, it's the juice of the olive obtained through mechanical means, and by mechanical means they mean that it can't involve heat or solvents or chemicals, which are how other things are extracted. It's either crushed, like between two stones, which is how they traditionally did it, and some places still do it, or spun in a centrifuge at really high speed until the oil comes out, or... Uh, like wine grapes, at a lot of places today, they crush it with like an inflatable bladder. Um, so they put it, you know, in like a sieve and then blow up a giant balloon against it and it crushes the juice. But so it, it, it it's always some form of sort of essentially crushing the olive. That juice comes out and that's called virgin olive oil, right? You can't, you're not allowed to do anything to it. You're not allowed to add anything. You're not allowed to heat it. You're not allowed to process it. That's virgin olive oil. Once you get that, It has to be graded, and it's graded in two ways. It's graded in the laboratory, and they have – there's all these different – there's polyphenol counts and acidity, and they have standards for each one of these factors and cutoffs. So it's, you know, like taking a test at school. They grade that olive oil, and if it scores above a certain level on those laboratory tests, then it's extra virgin. If it scores below that, it's just virgin, and if it scores below that, it's called Lampante, which is Italian for lamp oil, and that's not meant in a really good way. <laughs> and if it scores in the Lampante ca- category, according to the USDA, it's considered unfit for human consumption. So they can't sell that. Um, so, but then it also has to go through a second test, which is sensory evaluation, which is a, literally a panel of expert tasters. And there's very, very few foods in the world that are regulated by taste. You know, when you go buy, like, a steak, there's nobody at the USDA tasting it and saying, yeah, I give this the thumbs up. Very few foods. Uh, Interestingly, Parmesan Reggiano cheese, which we mentioned earlier, is one of the other ones. that has an actual taste test to get its seal of approval. But so the panel of tasters will try the oil, and there's 16 factors that they call defects, right? And they're like rancidity earthiness, you know, different, and if they find any one of these 16 factors, it fails. So extra virgin olive oil is, like, the most perfect olive oil there can be, and it's only, depending on the year and the harvest, somewhere around 10% of all the olive oil made. So it's like, I sometimes, you know, say it's like gasoline, you know, you go up there and there's, like, ultra-premium, super-premium, and regular. (laughs) So, you know, uh, we only know really about extra virgin olive oil because that's what everybody says, but that's the highest grade of olive oil you can buy, and that's what you should be buying. And so then there's a virgin, which is hard to find in this country. In Europe, people buy it more because it's cheaper and they use it for cooking, but that hasn't really caught on in the U.S. And then that third category, the Lampante, what they do because it's unfit for human consumption, is then they refine it. They basically distill it, heat it, um, purify it. It becomes a neutral oil. It no longer has any taste. And now it's edible, and they use it in other things, like salad dressing. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the one that you want to buy is always extra virgin. And you can find you'll, – you'll see bottles at the supermarket. Sometimes it's a light olive oil. And again, you know, light is something that's designed to cater to um, Americans' fear of obesity. But in this case, light olive oil doesn't actually have any less calories. It's light in flavor. Um, and uh, sometimes it'll just say pure olive oil or Mediterranean olive oil. But if it doesn't say extra virgin on the label, you don't want to buy it.
0: Mind-blowing. Good stuff, but who knew that it was just so... The letter was so muddy with that. So I've got a question from my chat room. I'm not sure who threw it up there, but I'm not sure how much you know about this, but I'm asking anyways because, well, you're a food guy, so you might have a solid answer on this. Uh, Nonstick pans versus, like, uh, the old um, cast iron. Is there any preference for you?
1: Yeah, I use both. Um, I mean, the fear with nonstick pans is the coating coming off, basically, right? Because, you know, you don't want to be eating Teflon or whatever it's made out of. Um so my rule is you know to not buy like the cheapest nonstick pan and to keep an eye on it and you know with nonstick pans you're supposed to basically use um uh non metal implements right like a rubber or wood spatula things that won't scratch it If it becomes scratched, I would toss it. You don't want the coating coming off. You don't want it in your food. But I do use nonstick pans. You know, like if you ever go to like a Sunday buffet at a restaurant and you see them, you know, like the guy at the omelet station making omelets, they're always using nonstick pans. They're really good for things like eggs that you need to flip, that tend to stick. Um, uh, Fish can be good in it. Um, So it just depends really what you're cooking. Cast iron pans have... Like, had a, a revival among chefs recently. I actually used one tonight. I, you know, cooked dinner in a cast iron pan before I came on the show with you today. So, um,. Uh, they're great because they, they retain a lot of heat. They're really good for steak, for searing, for burgers, for things like that. The problem is they're a little bit harder to clean, uh, and they freak some people out because you're supposed to leave, you know, like a little buildup of oil on them in between cooking, and some people think that's not that sanitary. I don't worry about it because you're heating it up anyway. But, um, but with cast iron pans, it's best if you clean it immediately after you cook when it's hot, and that can be a pain because, A, you're trying to eat, and B, you're... Juggle in this hot pan with like a a, a mitt in the sink, <laughs> but uh, they work great.
0: For the listeners out, there, I love my I love cast iron. I scratch scraped too many uh, nonstick pans. Like I own yeah. one, but I don't I don't use it. I let my life use it.
1: She and I grill eggs, a lot, yeah. so I like to use the cast iron pans on the grill. You know, because they're basically indestructible. So,
0: yeah, so far, I'm pushing my luck. Though, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> no, hopefully not. Maybe probably knowing my luck, if it's breakable, I'll find a way. Now, I've seen this and I could see this as a problem for most of my listeners, and I I just want to bring this up because this boggled my. Here we are, boggling my mind again. But I I understand the principle now that we've talked about a little bit, but we're going to still mention it just for the sake of saying it. Counterfeit coffee? Are we serious right yeah. now? Yeah.
1: So um, this is not a a big problem today for most people. Uh, and but what what most people don't realize is just i mean coffee is the single most valuable agricultural product in the world and the second most valuable commodity after oil right the re annual value of the coffee market is more than gold it's more than coal it's more than meat i mean only oil right it's it's a huge market and um just about you know even though we think sometimes you know of, of certain countries like in asia consuming tea and they do uh coffee is a worldwide phenomenon it is widely enjoyed pretty much everywhere in the world and in a lot of countries it's like the only choice and um so it's a very big market big dollars and it's a very diverse chain it comes from all over the place it's produced i forget the number but you know over a Uh, like a hundred different countries grow coffee. There's all kinds of varieties. Um, So, and it's got a, you know, a lot of small farmers in less developed countries. So it's a convoluted supply chain. And anytime, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, it lends itself to adulteration. The good news, and, and it historically coffee has been very subject to, to adulteration because for most uh, of history, people bought only ground coffee because they didn't have coffee grinders at all. You couldn't go get like a Black & Decker or Krupp's home coffee grinder. And uh, ground coffee, you could put things in. You could throw twigs or you could throw leaves or you could throw burnt uh, paper, all kind of sawdust. We talked about sawdust <laughs> earlier. That would go into ground coffee. Um, today most people, or not, I don't know if most people, but everyone has the option to buy whole beans. And even if you don't have a grinder, you can buy whole beans at most supermarkets and grind them yourself there, right? Because they have a grinder for you. So once you take that step, you really can't be defrauded in the sense of adulteration. Coffee beans are very distinctive. You know what they look like. If they threw a bunch of, like, uh, garbanzo beans in there, you would notice it, right? <laughs> uh, coffee beans are coffee beans. It comes back to the whole food. This is exactly what i are talking about. Like, you know what a coffee bean looks like. So once you buy it, you know you're getting coffee, and you grind it yourself. The one problem with coffee is even though you know what a coffee bean looks like, you can't tell like a Jamaican Blue Mountain bean from a Kenyan AA bean, you know? So there's all these kinds of beans and they cost wildly different amounts. If you go to like a fancy coffee store and they have these barrels, some will be $8 a pound and some will be $25 a pound and you can't really tell. So you might get ripped off in terms of uh, paying For a kind of fancy coffee bean you're really not getting, but the good news with coffee is if you buy beans, you're getting coffee, and if you like the way it tastes, then you're happy. So uh, it's actually one of the kind of simpler foods to buy, but it has one of the oldest and longest and richest histories of adulteration of any food product.
0: One of the easier food products to buy, but one of the more difficult food products to buy, too, because there's so many different varieties.
1: Yeah, and it really comes down, like, you have to try, um, you know, like, and, and your taste change over time. I personally, I drink a lot of coffee, and I used to like, like, a really dark roast, so I would buy a French roast or an espresso kind of roast, and as I've gotten older, I've gone to, like, a more mild coffee, but that's, you know, you, you, the good thing about it is, when, especially when you buy by the beans, you don't have to buy any particular quantity. You can buy a half pound, you can buy a quarter pound, you can buy three quarters of a pound, you can try it, you don't like it, get something else the next time.
0: Buy it by the ton. Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs>
1: But but I do tell people just don't try don't buy it pre ground. You know, there's just no reason to today.
0: Well what what's the I mean we talked about with, with olive oil earlier. What's the life do you know the lifespan of a, a coffee bean? Does it, does it disintegrate the same way olive oil does or
1: uh, it's certainly la- it's it's certainly um more stable than olive oil, especially because it's you know already been roasted so um you know fresh coffee beans are green if you ever see it roasted it's kind of cool. but once're roasted, you know it's sort of like you know uh, nuts um, they have a longer shelf life. I don't actually know how long it is, but I do I keep my own beans in the freezer. Um, which I have read uh, prolongs the life, though they don't do that at the supermarket. So, you know, I don't know how old they are when I already (laughs) buy them. Um, But I guess, you know, again, I I, I go back to the olive oil example. Like, I've had really good olive oil. I've had the best olive oil in the world. I've had it fresh. I've been to harvest. And I can tell when bad olive oil, you know, what it tastes like. So I've had a lot of coffee, too. And I know that my coffee isn't that bad, so I assume I'm doing something wrong. Right.
0: (laughs) Something. You're doing something. (laughs) We're not sure yet what. Um, Question from the chat room. What do you think about this lab-grown meat, real meat? It's coming to the market in the United States later this year. Anyways, go ahead.
1: Yeah. um, So I'm I'm a little skeptical just because I don't know, like, you know, the science behind it. But, you know, it's... it doesn't actually bother me as much as the the fake meat like these like uh you know beyond meat whatever it's called you know like burger king just rolled out and it's not that i have anything against vegetarian burgers what i don't like is a lot of these products are are being marketed in a deceptive way they're not being marketed as like an alternative they're being marketed as the real product and they're not and uh like i got a, a pr pitch the other day for a product called just eggs Right? And if if it was just orange juice, you'd have no day. But, hey, just orange juice, what is it, right? It's mm-hmm. orange juice. But just eggs has no eggs. It's like synthetic uh, plant-based eggs. So if people want plant-based eggs, I'm totally fine with that. But call it, like, fake eggs.
0: Or yes. fake Just eggs makes eggs. me think that, you know, that just the chicken that was just here.
1: Yeah, and I saw like a brand of uh, like a, a vegetable chicken products in the supermarket that was called chicken, but with an apostrophe instead of the e, right? So it's like chicken, and <laughs> you know, and so I, 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 you know, I just think, you know, if you're going to make uh, imitations of things, you know, I actually say in my book, I love the word imitation, right? Because if you tell me, hey, I'm serving imitation Kobe beef or imitation champagne, well, I know right away that that's not the real thing. I'm no I'm no longer getting confused. I'm no longer getting ripped off. I might want to say, Well, how do you make it? or what you know, but it's a great clarifier and um but the lab grown meat is a little different because it's really meat. Um so yeah, it it it'll it's it's interesting to see because there are I mean the, the big issue with food sustainability is that there's a lot of people in the world, you know. When I was growing up, I remember when the population of the world was like 3-point-something billion, and now it's 8-point-something billion, right? That's a big change, uh, and it's not getting any smaller. So, um, you know, ultimately, you can only raise, you know, so many animals and grow so many vegetables. So uh, I guess this is where the future is taking us. It's going to be interesting to see.
0: And what what is wrong with a, well, a nice-cooked portobello mushroom?
1: Oh, yeah, if you like it, nothing.
0: Well, I'm just saying to all these people out there who are trying to reinvent this vegetarian burger thing, just, I don't know, just irritates me. Chopping up a whole bunch of stuff and trying to make it look like a good patty, It just slap a portobello on there and move on with your life. That's what you want.
1: Anyway. Yeah, it's not like there's not lots of great vegetarian dishes, like pizza.
0: I guess that comes back to your point of buying the whole food and just, you know what you got there.
1: Yeah, Exactly.
0: So, okay, so I wanted to get into this, um, a couple other little things. I look at the clock and I'm like, well, if I don't do it now, we probably won't get into them. <laughs> <laughs> you, in 2002 or 2001, that you were the, one of the top 10 extreme journalists. Do I even want to get here? What, what makes you extreme? <laughs> or is this some kind of gag that I'm not falling, I'm not paying attention to, or what?
1: Uh, no. So I mentioned, um, you know, that I, this is not, this, uh, real food, fake food, while it was like a big seller, was not my first book. Um, And my previous book before this was called Getting Into Guinness, and it was about the history and cultural impact of the Guinness Book of World Records, um, which I think is really fascinating. I wrote it, so I'm a little bit biased. I think it's a great book, but it didn't sell particularly well. Not a lot of people read it. Um, And... um, you know, it's all, you know, the Guinness uh, Book of World Records. Uh, most people don't know this, but it's the uh, best-selling copyrighted book in human history. And by most uh, informed estimates, it's the fourth most widely read book of all time after the Bible and Chairman Mao's little red book in the Koran. So uh, it's pretty big in terms of, you know, it's translated into more than 100 languages. It's been a bestseller. In Pretty much every country it's released in every year for the last 50 years. Uh, it's spawned TV shows. So it's kind of like a big cultural deal. And I actually make the argument that the Guinness Book of World Records is the, the prequel or the forerunner to reality TV. And, um, but anyway, uh, in the course of writing this book, to sort of immerse myself in the world, I set uh, three Guinness World Records myself. And that's uh, sort of why they dubbed me these extreme journalists, because I did these wacky things.
0: Do you still hold any of these records, or have they all been broken?
1: You know, so that (laughs) (laughs) that, people ask me that all the time. It's a weird question, because um, the Guinness Book of World Records, because their whole sort of franchise is selling this book every year, they don't make the database available electronically. And the book is a is a best of compilation you know it only has like a small percentage of all the records they maintain so there's really no way to know when somebody breaks your record unless you happen to like see it in the newspaper and the only so when you They have a a very complex process, but if you want to break a record or set a new record, you apply by writing, or you you can do it online, and then, you know, say you say, you know, hey, I want to break the record for, you know, most Apple's juggled. Then they'll tell you, okay, well, the current record is 17. But you have no way of knowing that until you go through the process. So I know that one of my three records was definitely broken because I saw it on the news. Uh, The other two... Actually, I know two of them were broken. The third one, I don't know if it still stands or not.
0: Well, give me one of the ones that was broken. Maybe I'll break it and bring it back closer to home.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the very first one that I did was the longest marathon casino poker playing session. Um, And I played poker at Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut for roughly, at least seventy three hours
0: without. No, that, that's not going to happen. So what's the other one?
1: And that was broken. And not only was it broken, it was shattered. They took it to uh, over a hundred, I believe, which is like another full day, which is a really long time. I'm, I know gonna say, I
0: don't I'm not, know. not. I'm not sure. I'm getting past like thirty six. So I'm not good and there.
1: Your eyes start to really <laughs> hurt. It's like watching TV. You know, it really tires out your eyes. Um, uh, let's see. So the second one was. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. That was the second one. The poker was the second one. The first one was the greatest distance traveled between two rounds of golf played in the same day, which is a little physically easier but logistically difficult. And that was 7,496 miles. So I played golf in Australia and then immediately jumped on a plane and flew back to the U.S. and played here all in the same day.
0: You know, I've actually heard of that one before. That's ridiculous, by the way. Congratulations on doing just having to... Ability to do that, first and foremost. Well,
1: you know, I look through the golf section, and it's like the the book is ruled by Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods, so I'm like, well, I really can't beat those guys.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Me either. There might have been a time where I might have had a brief, but that was very brief, like that Caddyshack round, but that's about
1: it. And (laughs) I keep playing. Um, But, uh, yeah, so that one got broken, too, and then... um, The third one, the one that may or may not still stand, was the most um, different ski trails skied in their entirety in eight hours, and that is 64, and um, that one I've never heard of being broken, but I actually um, did it. I wrote an article about it for Outside Magazine, and I sort of used it to lay out the whole Guinness process and how to break it and challenge the readers to break it. So I expected it to be broken, but I never actually heard that it was.
0: What what defines a trail? Does it have to be a certain length?
1: Uh, as it appears on the map of the ski resort. So they have, like, really detailed rules. It's one of the things that surprised. You know, people are like, oh, he, you know, did jumping jacks for... Um, you know, whatever hours, but they, when you apply, they, they tell you like how many witnesses you need, what kind of documentation, whether you need like video, uh, the endurance ones, like the poker, you need to have a uh, medical observation. Um, so they set out like really strict rules for each record because they want, even if though the records are sometimes really bizarre and really funny, they take them seriously, but they also want them to be standardized so that when the next person goes to break it, they have like a framework to do it in.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I understand. That's but still... Because I'm sitting here thinking I can just put up, like, 64 different little trail. Well, of course, I can't ski, so that's not the the point.
1: But. Yeah, it's harder than you think because they say, like, in their entirety. So, you know, like, a lot of times at ski resorts, the trails interconnect. And so you'd have to do, like, even if it's, like, three trails woven together, you'd have to do three different rides up the lift. And then um, a lot of ski resorts don't even have, I mean... I was going to say... A big ski resort has 100 runs, right? So... And they have to all be open. They have to have snow. Um, you know, you went to, you know, Jack Frost in Pennsylvania. They probably don't even have 64 runs, right? So you couldn't do it.
0: That's what I, I'm just sitting here thinking, how many ski resorts <laughs> have that many runs? And then, as you are mentioning, there's the time down and there's the time up. I mean, there's a literal limitation to it i mean unless you're yeah even if
1: you're like lindsey vaughn or Bodie miller and you can ski really fast the limitation is is riding the lift right that takes everyone the same amount of time so i did it actually at crest butte ski resort in colorado but there's probably you know there's maybe i would say a dozen there's, there's more than a dozen resorts in the u.s that have more than 64 runs but that would be like viable for record breaking
0: good to know I guess. <laughs> yeah, usual information, right? <laughs> yeah, back to the... Okay, so the other one, it was just an article that you had uh, published the other day, and I, I did look it up just for the last because I had to see it, but um, this TSA Swiss Army knife, which is kind of misleading because it's just kind of a dud in my opinion, but go ahead, give me a little bit more. I mean, what? it's a wine opener.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> it is actually... I, I do agree with you, it's a little bit of a dud, but what happened was when you know they sort of first rolled out the new TSA rules. Um, they made like a much fuller version that I, I bought and I own and I've been carrying for, I don't know, like the last three years. And I love it because it's like a full-featured Swiss Army knife. It has like 18 different tools. It just doesn't have the actual blade, so which is what makes it TSA legal. But it has the scissors, you know. So, you know, I'm traveling and, I don't know, I need to cut a Band-Aid or cut a tag out of clothing or, you know, run into stuff in your hotel. And then when I went to do the story, I saw that they actually discontinued that model and replaced it with this smaller one that just has, like, a scissor and, you know, it looks like basically like the small Swiss Army knife that a lot of people have on their keychain, but without the blade. But it's still, you know, it's kind of handy to have that scissor and the screwdriver with you, uh, Um, I think it also pops beers, you know, when you travel. So, uh, you know, it's not the best tool you could carry with you, but it's the only tool you could carry on the plane.
0: Still disappointing. (laughs) Just saying.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, but, yeah, I had the small one as a kid, and I had the bigger, you know, the big, I don't know how many tools I had, but it just felt huge. Like, it was just impressive. You know, it was just... You know, and then how many cuts on my hands are from it, I can't remember, but more than more than a fair share. Uh, <laughs> Realfoodsfakefoods.com, what else do we need to talk about real quick here before we run out of time?
1: Um, You know, if people want to see the TEDx talk, which is a little bit, um, you know, uh, more concise and... Um, uh, you know, uh, more, I would say, instructional, maybe, than what we talked about, just straight-up tips. They should check that out. Um, they'll just have to Google it, but, uh, you know, because the address is too long for me to say. But, um, but yeah, I, you know, my book, the biggest thing is, is, I think, the tips. At the end of every chapter, um, you know, people want, like, action points and something that they can do. Uh, you know, they hear this on the radio, and they say, yeah, I want to buy better olive oil, but maybe don't remember everything we said, so... It's all in there, and you know it's out in paperback now, so it's it's cheaper. They can get it on uh, Kindle. Um, you know, they can get it on audio. However, however, people want it: real food, fake food.
0: they have to buy the whole book, right? Just to make sure we're clear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody's selling it by chapters, you know. But you don't know because it's interesting in the publishing industry. You know, they license. You know, they, the audio book is done by a different company. You know, you just sort of sign your life away. So I don't, I don't even know what's going on. <laughs>
0: There's a business idea out there for somebody. selling books by chapter. Anybody out there who ne- really needs a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Larry, well, anyway, I want to thank you for the time. I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. Of course, now I'm going to go look at my olive oil, and then I'm going to have to go shopping probably tomorrow. So just for the record, yeah, you're yeah. on the hook for that.
1: Yeah, but you'll like it. It'll be worth it. You'll be thanking me.
0: I will. All right, have a good evening.
1: All right, you too. Bye-bye.
0: And that's uh, Larry Olmstead there, talking olive oil, talking all sorts of good stuff. I wanted to clean up the show real quick. i got 30 seconds left. Uh, if you have not been to Mauer.com, you have not been to Mauer.com. Of course you have been to Mauer.com. Uh, new look-ish today. I uh, finally got the new server done, the new, ser- the new IceCast servers done. The links down the side are all correct and all current as of today. So all those places have the show. Uh, if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, the newsletter's coming back. I had to disconnect it while I was changing servers because, anyways, as you can imagine, it didn't work right. So it'll be back shortly as I reconnect everything. But that's the last thing on the list to do, so we're going to do that probably tomorrow. Have a good night, everybody. The views and opinions expressed on the Mallard Report are those of the host and participants. For past shows social media links, and so much more. Visit mallard.com, M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. And thanks for listening.